took a, a look at what happens to those who know Jesus Christ that have went on to be with the Lord. What are they doing in that intermediate heaven? If you were here last week, you watched us walk through that timeline and you saw the realities of what they're experiencing. And hopefully it brought you some hope uh, when you left. Today we're going to move fast forward ahead on this timeline. And in a few minutes I'm going to show you where we're at. But we're going to push clean out on this timeline. We're going to walk clean past where Satan is is bound up, and then he's released at the end of the millennial reign, and then he's cast into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. And at the end of that, we're going to see what takes place called this eternal state. And I'm going to be referring to it often throughout the day this morning as the eternal state. It's where the new heaven and the new earth come together as one. And I'm going to show you from Scripture where Scripture gives us this picture in Revelation 21 that the heaven comes down and plants itself on this new earth and they reside together and God dwells with his people. But just prior to that, we're going to look at what happens to us. Those of us who are Christ followers, does it really matter how we live? It does, do the things that you do right now as a Christ follower impact your eternity in this eternal state? Does it matter? And we're going to answer some questions like this today. What will I do now to impact Or what I do now, does it impact the future? How about this one? Will I recognize my family that I'm seated with here today? Will I know them in this eternal state? Will will they be familiar? Will, Will I have the same house that John talks about in John 14 when Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you? Will we remain the same age? Like when you find yourselves at 60, at 70, at 80, and the rapture occurs, will, will you and me be at the same age? Will we be all at the same age? Will we we'll be at a prime age? Will everyone be at 30? Or will there be babies and infants and adults and grandparents? What will be the age of people in heaven? Will it be one continuous worship service? Will it be 24-7 bowing before God Day and night, is that what the eternal state is? Is that what we'll do in where the new heaven and the new earth come together? Is that what we'll do for the rest of eternity? Will it be just one continuous worship service? Will I remember those that have died and gone to hell? Will there be moments when I'm in this eternal state that because I've loved people dearly, maybe it was a relative or friend or coworker or colleague or schoolmate or teacher or coach, And you know that they're in hell because you know that we've already passed that where everyone is thrown into the lake of fire. Will will that impact my eternity? Will will that somehow, will I grapple with those emotions in a way that I won't be able to handle? How will I deal with that? Will I still work nine to five? Will I I have an opportunity that, that I get up in the morning and I go and I punch into a job? Is there work in this new place, this eternal state in heaven where the new heaven and new earth comes together? Will it matter how I lived on earth or will everyone have the same power, position, and privilege? Like does everybody, no matter how you lived on planet earth, when we finally get to this eternal state, does it matter how we live back then? We're like everyone, all right, we're in heaven. Everyone has the same responsibility, privilege. Does it really matter that we obeyed God, that we got saved, and that after that we just say, hey, I'm saved, I'm in, I got the ticket, I'm in. Does it matter to those who, who serve sacrificially, who, who day in and day out live for Christ, will somehow they have a different privilege, 
power and position in this new heaven? We're going to look at some of those questions today, and we're going to begin by looking at what happens when we're judged and what we receive there. And then we're going to close out this message by looking and answering those questions and many other questions. Grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. And if you don't have a Bible, I highly encourage you to hold your hand up and put one in your hand. And, and if you don't own a Bible, take this Bible home with you. It's a gift from Grace Community Church. And, or open up your mobile device. And if you're a husband and wife, I would encourage you not even to share a Bible today. Just have your own Bible so you can mark it up, so you can highlight it. Because these questions are ones that you've probably been asked and you'll be asking, and now you'll have a place to go to that you've marked and see what God's word says. But turn to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus gives us this parable about future things. And in this parable, it gives us great insight into what's going to happen in this eternal state. Stay with me, and we're going to read Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Let's read Matthew 25, 14 to 30 together. Ready, read. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the masters of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and throw that word worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You may have a seat. Some basic principles. Jesus is looking ahead. He gives this parable and there were three men that had talents, abilities, and skills. And we see bags of gold. One invested well, another invested well, and another one didn't invest well. And as a result of what they were given and how they took what was given to them and what they were entrusted with, God rewarded them. The master rewards them. And you'll see from this text that one is thrown into the pit of hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because he took this bag of gold, this investment that Christ had given him, and he buried it. He didn't use it. 
Another took the, the gift of gold, the bag of gold, the wealth, the, the entrustment of gifts, abilities, and, and talents, and doubled the return on it. And in each case that it was doubled, Jesus says, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You and I will be given rewards according to the way we lived on earth. We just will. So keep in mind that today, it matters how you live today. It matters how you live for Christ tomorrow. You can't take time off and say, you know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I'm, the Holy Spirit resides in me, but that's it. I'm not doing anything else for Jesus. Well, I have news for you. It matters how you live because you have an opportunity to exalt the name of Jesus. You have an, an opportunity to be rewarded. And then in turn, we're going to see, turn them back and lay them at Jesus' feet. But before we get there, here's a question that often surfaces in these kind of series. And I'm sure you've thought about this. And if you haven't thought about it, someone has asked you this question. There was a book that was written years, a couple years back, and it was a heretical book. And this question surfaced. But here's the question. And maybe you're asking this question and you're at Grace Community today. How can a loving God throw people into hell? Or why would God not send everyone to heaven? You don't need to raise your hand, but how many times have you thought about that? How many times have you had someone ask you that question? How can a loving God throw everyone that doesn't know him into hell? And why would a God who says he's a loving God even create a hell? Why didn't he create an earth? Why didn't he have an earth where every single human being lives on earth, gets to the end of their life, and, and then automatically spends eternity in heaven? How in the world can God call himself loving if in turn those that reject him, he created this place called hell and they end up burning forever and ever and ever and ever. We have to pull aside for a moment or two and just aside our emotions. Now listen, that's very difficult. And and for me, it's very, very difficult. I'm just being very honest because I know people who are burning in hell. In my human side of me, I grapple with that. It hurts because they'll never have another chance. Like I I showed you last week, and the the rich man and Lazarus, and he said, can you just send him here and just put his finger in this water and dip it on my tongue? That person who is in hell will go the rest of their life. And we talked last week, there's not an annihilation that takes place. It's just forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever burning in hell. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about that. So how can God do that? How can a loving God that loves loves the world so much that he would create a hell? I respond with these three principles. And hopefully they'll make sense to you today. I would encourage you to write these down because someone's going to ask you this question that you work with. Someone's going to ask this question that's a family member. Someone that's a friend of yours is going to ask this question. How can a loving God? I would say... My first response to that is always this phrase. Mercy requires justice. Now, let me walk through that and help you understand that. When a judge pardons an unrepentant rapist without warrant, we don't typically see that as an act of love. Particularly when we consider the rights of the victim and the safety of potential future victims. Like, you wouldn't see that as an act of love. Like, they did that. There, there must be justice for that. 
And so in light of that, mercy without justice is reckless, meaningless, and dangerous. True love cares enough to punish wrongdoing. And I, and, and, And as I was processing this, it's because of this. And for this reason, a God of love must also be a God of justice, recognizing, separating, and punishing wrongdoers. Hell is the place where God's loving justice is realized and executed. Secondly, I say this when people ask me this question. Freedom requires consequences. True love cannot be coerced. We can't coerce love. Humans must have freedom in order to love. And this includes the freedom to reject God altogether. We are created with free will. God didn't create us as puppets. And I'm going to make you love. And I'm going to make you do this. And I'm going to make you do that. And I'm going to make you do that. We aren't just puppets that are on these strings. We have a free will. And so in light of that, those who do not want to love God must be allowed to reject him. It's the free will that's within us. Those who don't want to be in God's presence must be allowed to separate themselves from him if their free will is to be respected. God's love requires the provision of human freedom and human free will necessitates consequence. Hell is the place where humans who freely reject God experience the consequence of their choice. Thirdly, I respond with this. First, it was mercy requires judgment. Freedom requires consequence. Thirdly, victory always requires punishment. It just does. All of us struggle, including myself, to understand why why evil exists in our world. If there's an all-powerful, and there is, all-loving, and there is God, This God, by his very nature, has the power and opportunity to conquer and punish evil. If God is both powerful and loving, and he is, he has to be eventually victorious. Or we have to say, do away with phrases and truths that says, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. God's victory over evil will be achieved in eternity. And God has provided a mechanism. Though evil will be permanently conquered and punished in the next life, hell is the place where an all-loving and all-powerful God will ultimately defeat and punish evil. There's a cause and effect to free will. And God has created us with this free will. And by the way, I say praise the Lord. We're not puppets. Praise the Lord. He's given us the free will. As a parent, think about from a, a parental perspective, as, as a father or mother, when your child responds in that free will to obey you and to do something because they want to honor you and love you, not just because you force them to. The difference in your response to that is cataclysmic. You see them and you say, thank you. What kind of life would it be as a parent if all that you did was coerce and you force, go do that and you push them and you shove them and you take their arm and you make them do it and, and, and you open up their Bible and, and you read through them and, and that's all you do. It's just coercion the whole way. What kind of response would that be to you as the parent of this child? So God has designed free will. 
But when your child does it and makes the choice, their own choice to follow God, to take their own faith and make it their own, to live out their faith, doesn't that do something for you? It's the same with God. So first, before we go there, we must address that. So how about this judgment for us? I want to pull up this timeline and give you some some picture here, and you'll see it up on the big screen. I'll point here, and you can look there. We know from eschatology, the study of future things, that the next thing on the timeline is what we would call the rapture. And I said last week, by the way, every sign that we need for the second coming even that's after the rapture is already there. And be quite frank, I'm being quite frank, I'm not trying to scare anyone. The rapture could occur right now. There's no reason, because all the signs that I see in Scripture for the second coming of Christ, which is after the rapture, have already been, as I understand. And I shared last week, I'm I'm a pre-tribulationist, I'm not here to argue that, but I'm taking this from that perspective, that the church is raptured before the tribulation period. So the next thing on our timeline is the rapture. After that is the seven years of tribulation. At the top of this timeline is this thing called the judgment seat of Christ. Now listen, we talked a little bit last week. That's where you and I, who are Christ followers, will be judged. Judgment seat is the Greek word bimatos. It's where we get the bima seat. Only Christians go here. Then the next thing on the timeline is the millennial reign, which is a thousand years. We're going to look at that in the weeks ahead. At the end of that, there's a great white throne judgment for people who are unsaved. After that happens, everyone is basically thrown into hell. And that ushers in what we understand as what we would call the eternal state, where the new heavens and new earth. And I'm going to show you in scripture where literally the new heaven comes down to the new earth, plants itself. But for sake of understanding, let's talk about this bimatas, the judgment seat of Christ. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to show you what we're judged for and what takes place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Please turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is what happens for you and me who are Christ followers. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says this. For we must, how many appear before the judgment seat? All appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is what? What's the word? There it is. Why are we going there? Why are we going to the judgment seat? We're going to get what is due us. What are we do? Like, why would we be do anything? What, what, what is it that we should be given to us? What is do us? And so there's this picture, the bimatos. First Corinthians chapter three gives a picture of it. It's a fire test. Romans chapter 14 talks about us being judged, but it's a fire test and, 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 and it'll, it'll test the quality of our works. So not only is it important, the quantity, but it's the quality. Why quality? Because Quality literally could throw away things that you've done. If it wasn't done for the right motive, if it wasn't done to honor God, like if we serve God so that we get recognition, like, look at me, I serve God. Look at me, hey world. That's not the quality that he's looking for. Look what else it says here at at this judgment. It says, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the what? Body, there it is, whether good or bad. So you and I will stand 
at the Bema seat before the righteous judge. And somehow, I don't know, my mind we can't understand completely, but every good thing that we've done, by the way, remember, Christians aren't judged for evil. We are judged for the good things that we've done. Why would we be judged? So that we may get what is due us. And what do we do after we receive it? Turn to Revelation chapter 4. It's very important. Revelation chapter 4. Just hold your hand here, but turn to Revelation chapter 4. Here's what we do with these things that we receive. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10 says this. The 24 elders, and by the way, I believe that they are men. I don't believe that they're angels. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, worship him, worship him who lives forever and ever, and they lay their what before the throne? The crowns. Here's the picture. Matthew chapter 25. God says, you did this, good and faithful servant. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. You will rule over many things. We stand before God and we receive these crowns based upon what is due us for the work that we've done for the Lord. So what are the crowns? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me give you a snapshot of what Scripture records. These are the things that we can earn that is due us and that ultimately we lay back at Jesus' feet. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25. Paul says this. Everyone who competes in the games goes into what kind of training? Okay, help me out. 1 Corinthians, you should have a Bible in your hand. We got, if you need one, hold your hand up. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into what kind of training? They do it to get a what? That will not last. But we do it to get a crown that lasts how long? And then Paul says, therefore, because of this, I do not run like someone aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer just beating the air. No, he says, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my what? So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for what? The prize. What is this? Let me tell you what it is. It's for the person that lives a disciplined life that has control and power over these inducements of the world, these sinful desires of the world. It's a person that day in and day out gets up and serves God and puts away the the desires of the flesh and strives for purity, has an appetite for holiness and righteousness. And not only that, a disciplined life. Let me just pull away and make this very practical. It's one of the primary reasons, if you've ever been part of any of our men's and women's journeys, why we have disciplines. Why do we have disciplines? Why do we encourage men to grow physically, spiritually, relationally, and intellectually? Because we desire that every single day they're reading God's word. Every single day they're growing in relationship. Every single day they're growing intellectually. Every single day they're growing in the relationship with God. It's the picture of beating our bodies and getting fit in all those areas. Not aimlessly, but strategically having some kind of discipline in your life that you're growing and becoming more like Jesus 
every single day of your life. And you know what happens? Why? We get rewarded for that. It's why the runner who puts a goal out there that wants to run a race trains for it. It's why the teacher that wants to become a teacher goes to college and work towards it. It's the person who wants to remain pure, sets an accountability partner in their life, asking them the hard questions and bounces their eyes. It's the person who's disciplined. And by the way, God did not give a spirit of, 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 of anything but discipline. He gave us a spirit of self-control. It is in us to operate out through us. It's important. Let me ask you a question. How disciplined are you? Are you regularly reading God's word? Or is it kind of hit and miss? I'm taking this week off. I'm good for 10 weeks, but these 12 weeks I'm not. It's the picture of the person every day, just hungry, chasing after Jesus. And when we are, listen, the quality of that, not, not, not so we can say, look what I did. The quality is, I did it for you, Jesus Christ. Listen, you've given me this many years to live. I'm going to run for the prize, the prize, the crown, the incorruptible crown. Next crown, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Here's another crown that you can receive. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 gives us another picture of a crown that we receive. It's called the crown of life. Revelation 2 and verse 10. Paul said it for me to live as Christ and to die as gain in Philippians 1.21. But then it says this in Revelation 2 and 10. It says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to what you? Yeah. Test you. And you will what? Suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of what? And I will give you your victors What? It's a martyr's crown. As someone who suffers for the faith, I don't think we really understand what it means to suffer for our faith. Oh, I got a friend. They know I'm a Christian and they don't like me anymore. Listen, that's not suffering. You know what suffering is? It's standing in the midst of that and saying, listen, I love you and I love you. You can throw anything at me. I want to let you know, even if you leave me and I'm never your friend and I sit at the lunch table all by myself, I want you to know that I'm standing for Jesus Christ. And you can hang stuff up in my locker. You can slam me on Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter, but I want you to know, listen, listen, that's not going to change what I know to be true. Jesus is Lord and King of my life. That's suffering. It's not like, oh, it's the picture of someone standing in the workplace. Now listen, we've got to be careful here because some of us think, oh, I'm being persecuted because we act like idiots. Now help me, under, help you understand this. It's, listen, we, we, we aren't supposed to act that way. The gospel is 1 Peter 3.15 says that, that we should be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks, but do it with what? Gentleness and respect. It's standing up and saying, listen, I love you too much. Would you give me the chance? I want to tell you why I believe. Listen, if they're not already asking you about your life, then listen, you probably have something to do in your life to reflect more of Jesus Christ. If you're not any different than the world. But it's a picture of suffering for your faith. The next crown that we receive is 1 Peter chapter 5. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. 
Peter said this. He said, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are what? What's the word? Willing. Willing, As God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to what? Serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of what? That will never fade away. This crown is the shepherd's crown. Some would call it the pastor's crown. It is for those who have given their lives to shepherding and teaching the word of God. Now, let me pull away and just say something. It's not just the guy that you see on stage on a Sunday morning. And by the way, he has to be faithfully doing that. Just because he's doing it doesn't mean he's doing it for the noble purposes. Not to bring attention to himself, but to God. It's the person who's entrusting in men and saying, I'm going to shepherd these men. I'm going to develop these men. It's the woman who's shepherding women and saying, I'm going to shepherd these women. I'm going to pour into these women. I'm going to teach them how to study God's word. I'm not going to let them fall. I'm not going to let her fall. It's the picture of you get up and you have this group of people, this small group. It's the, it's the, it's the, the caregiver in children's ministry that's invested in third graders and fourth graders and fifth graders and sixth graders. It's, it's you're shepherding them to do what? To help them to become more like Christ. It's a faithful pattern of teaching and shepherding others. What's the next crown? Second Timothy chapter four and verse eight. And by the way, how are you doing in that area? Are you giving your life away? Second Timothy chapter two or chapter four, look what it says in Second Timothy chapter, it's after First and Second Thessalonians. Second Timothy chapter four, the crown of righteousness. Paul says this, he says in verse seven, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me and others the crown of what? Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his what? I love this one, by the way, Grace Community. Like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. We always stop in verse 16, but you read verse 18. It says, but encourage each other with these words daily. What words? Jesus is coming again. And there's going to be the voice of an archangel. And there's going to be the trumpet sound of God. And there's going to be this cataclysmic thing that's going to take place on our earth. And I believe that the church, look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, it says that we're taken from this great thing that's coming. I believe that the church is raptured out. And it's the imminent return of Jesus Christ to rapture his church. And it says, to those that long for it, to those that encourage others daily about it, to those that use social media and say, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, be ready. There's this crown that's in store for those that long for his appearing. So are you longing? Or are you trying to hold on? Oh, Lord, I want to I be able to cash in my retirement for, I want to see my kids. I want to get that vacation home. Let me just say something. Let me speak to this. If there's anything that you're longing more than the appearing of Jesus Christ, you need a heart check. Now hear me out, hear me out. I understand what happens. I understand that you know someone that doesn't know Christ. Listen to me, though. If you're longing for anything more than Jesus and Jesus appearing, then you need a heart check. 
we are actually rewarded for that. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, next crown that we can receive. Chapter 2 and verse 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verses 19 and 20. Paul says this, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence? What is it of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? He's saying, what, what is our hope? What is our joy? Like, what is it that gives us this hope and joy? And then he says this, he says, is it not what? You. Indeed, you are our glory and joy. What does that mean? Like, how do you interpret that? Listen, you know what it is? It's that person that's sharing their faith. And they're saying, you are our hope and joy. You didn't know Christ, but listen, now you do. You're what keeps me going, watching the transformation from death to life. It's the person that regularly shares their faith. You know people that they have an evangelistic fervor to them. Listen, it's not anything to do with gifting. Some of us have the gift of evangelism, but we're called also to do the work of evangelists. It's sharing your faith. Let me just ask a personal question. Who's the last person that you shared Jesus Christ with? Who is it? Like, who's the last person that you explain the gospel? What's the gospel? We are lost and messed up. We need somebody to fix us, and his name is Jesus Christ. Who's the last person? Well, Pastor Jim, I'd like to get that crown. Seriously, who's the last person that you shared your faith with? Who's the last person you shared politics with? Did it hurt? Who's the last person you share Jesus with? Who do you work with? Do they know Jesus Christ? And they've worked with you for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. How about your neighbor? You've been neighbors for six years. Do you even know whether they're going to heaven or going to hell? Have you ever had the conversation? How about a sister? You say, oh, I can't talk to her. I can't talk to him. Have you just gently went to him and said, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I love you. Who's the last person you went to and said, I love you too much not to let you know about the good news of my Savior, Jesus Christ? You see, when you have that as a pattern, that's when the crown comes to light. And listen, they're not for us. They're so that when we stand, we won't be standing before Jesus. We'll be on our knees. And he'll say, the quality of your life has been marked out. I've entrusted you with these gifts, skills, abilities, and you've done this with it. And he'll lay these crowns. And you know what we do with them? We lay them at his feet. Part of that saying, Jesus, I was all in for you. I was more in for you than anything else. Like, isn't that, and shouldn't that be our passion? Not the trophy cases I hit six home runs. I hit six home runs with Jesus. You see, we live as though we're not going to die. We live as though there won't be judgment. We live as though there's not a hell and there's not a heaven. Church, hear me. There is coming a day when we stand before the King of Kings and it will matter how we lived. Can I get some amens? Please, bump it up. Bump it up. It's important. So what will heaven be like, this eternal state. Revelation chapter 22. Take a look at Revelation chapter 22. What is this eternal state? Let's take a look. Let's look at 21 first. Revelation chapter 21. 
Give me a snapshot, Pastor Jim. Tell me about this eternal state. What are you talking about? I'm gonna see it in scripture. Well, here it is. John had this vision on the island of Patmos. Look what he says. Revelation chapter 21 in verse one, he says, then I saw a what kind of heaven and a what kind of earth? For the first heaven and the first earth had what away? And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming where? What's it say? Down, coming down out of heaven. From who? Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, or look, or look. God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will what with them? And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their what? And here it is. We looked last week. When does, are the tears wiped away? Because I told you I believe in the intermediate heaven. There will be tears. Here's when it happens. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I want to bring some balance to the beam. Because in Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 and 11 is one that we often go to. We go to this and we quote it and say, that's what we're going to do in heaven. And it says that, that, that for day and night, let's look at it. Revelation chapter 4. Just, just see what it says. You got your finger in Revelation? Okay. Here's what we often go for. And sometimes we wonder, is this what we're going to do 24-7? Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8 says this. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sit on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And so we take that and we say, that's what we're gonna do, 24-7. Now, let me pull away and make this very relevant because this is what many men ask me. I've invested in investing in men. And they often ask me, as, as, as serious and, 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 and as, as, as compassionate and honest as can be, they'll ask me, Pastor Jim, I love Jesus with all my heart. I've committed my life to him, but I'm just being very honest. Can we have this level six conversation where you won't expose it? I struggle, Pastor Jim, thinking that for 24-7, the rest of my life, all I'm going to do is sing worship songs. There's not a dude in this place that's never thought that thought. Pastor Jim, like, there's something in me that's different. Like, there's this innate sense in me that wants to make, that wants to build, that wants to protect. When I get up, I want to protect. When I see something that's busted and just and broken down. I want to put it back together. I want to build teams. I want to build people. There's something in me that wants to take something out of nothing and then build something and make something and stand back and say, honey, look at that. Men are wired to cultivate. Men are wired to build. How do I know that? Isn't that what God told Adam to do before the curse? 
Genesis chapter three, the curse came. Before Genesis chapter three, he told Adam, he said, I am putting you, listen, he literally, he took Adam and it says he put him in the garden to work it and to do what? Take care of it. Before the curse, listen to me, hear me out. Before the curse, the desire that was placed in a man, this cultivating, we are built to cultivate. So when a dude says that to me, I understand it. Now, that doesn't take away that we will be enamored by God. And there will be moments that we, we are just blown away by his glory. But there's so much more. So we got to go back before the curse. Everything on this side of Genesis chapter 3 has been twisted. Everything out on, on side of Genesis chapter 3 has been changed. Like, this isn't what God intended for the earth. How about the new earth? As it was before Adam and Eve sinned. What are we going to do? Revelation chapter 22. Look what it says. Revelation chapter 22. Here it is. Here, here's, here it gives credence what I'm talking about. Revelation chapter 22. This is where Eden is restored. And then it says this in verse 3 of Revelation chapter 22. No longer will there be any what? The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will what him? You can't serve without working. So what will we do? I'm going to answer some questions that have come my way through the years. The first one is this. Will we rest? in this new eternal state where the new heaven, listen, comes down, plants itself on the new earth. Someone say, it can't be the same cosmos because it says it's, it's laid bare, like it passes away. Now listen to me. The same thing happened when Noah was on the earth and the water flooded the earth. It laid it bare. It wiped away what we know and it started over. God doesn't waste matter. And so I believe that it'll be the same cosmos that's been completely obliterated because of the battle of Armageddon. It'll be, but the same cosmos is there and we're going to create new things from it. Heaven comes down and plants itself on this new earth and the city is together as one and God dwells with this people. And now we have to take care of this new earth. So people often ask me this, will we rest in heaven? Well, let's go back to God's original design. Come on, let's just see what Scripture says. Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Let's just see what the Bible says. Before the curse, what does it say? Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the what? What's it say? He had been doing. So on the seventh day, he what? From all his what? Okay. Do you think God was tired? (laughs) Come on. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. And by the way, we're not. You see, sometimes we look at this and we think, listen, we're still finite people. We're not omniscient. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We're not omnipresent. We can't be like he is. He will be in this new heaven and this new earth. He, he can be everywhere at once. We can only be one place at one time. So listen, I believe that we will rest because we rested before the curse. Hebrews 4.11 says, enter into the, make every effort to enter that rest. People have asked me this question, will we sleep in this new eternal state? 
Some argue that we won't sleep because we have, we'll have perfect bodies. But the same argument can be used for eating. We see that there's this wedding supper of the lamb. Do you think we're not eating anything at a feast? I think we will eat. I don't think there will be animals that will be slain, but I think that we will eat. I think we'll eat vegetables and enjoy those vegetables. Most of us. You know I'm saying that facetiously. No, Pastor Mike won't, though. Will we sleep? Absolutely, we'll sleep. Isn't sleep one of life's greatest pleasures? Come on, isn't it? Isn't troubled sleep and restlessness a part of the curse? Sleep is a gift from God. Psalm says he grants sleep to those he loves. Some people say we won't be fatigued. I say, why not? Couldn't resources be depleted and renewed in a finite world just as they were in Eden? People ask me this, will we remember people that went or sent to hell? This is a very tender subject for me and for every single person who calls himself a Christ follower. Because every one of us know people that died without trusting in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I grapple with that. That hurts. I have friends, I have a high school friend that I didn't share Jesus Christ with. And he's burning in hell. And there are times it bothers me that I lose sleep over that. And so I wonder, when I get to heaven, will I remember that? How will I be able not to be moved emotionally to tears because of that? I think when we get to heaven, we'll see clearly for the first time that God gave every person incredible opportunities to believe in him. I believe for the very first time, 1 John 3, 2 says, we will be as he is. And we will see like we've never seen before. We will understand like we've never understood before. And we will be able to know what's taking place, but be so encaptured by a God of love and his plan and know that it was a perfect plan, that our hearts will be at rest because it's a perfect plan. I also know this from scripture for the first time, Romans chapter one, please turn there. I believe for the first time we'll understand this passage in a fresh way. Romans chapter one. On this side of the curse, I grapple with it. In the eternal state, I will understand it. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then Paul says this, Since what may be known about God is what to them? Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly what? Seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without what? I believe for the first time. Like, I'm telling you, I can't understand this fully. I'm speaking for myself on this side of eternity but I believe I'll be able to. 
And God will point out all these times, Jim, you shared 37 times, Bob, Tim, Terry, whomever you are, you shared. And listen, don't you realize, Jim, for the first time, look, I showed through creation every day the sun came up and the sun set. There are volcanoes in the majesty of creation. The tide came in and there were moon phases. I showed them over and over and over and over. And I think for the first time, we'll say, yes, you did. And I also think for the first time, we'll say, praise God that you chose me as your child. Will there be limitations in heaven? Keep in mind, please keep in mind, we're not God. We're not infinite. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We will be perfect, yet we'll be finite. And so, yes, there will be limitations. People ask me this, will we work in heaven as if work is a curse? Before, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God put Adam in the garden to work it and to care for it. Someone has to take care of the new earth. Adam's original job included work before he fell. Work wasn't part of the curse. It might be the people you're working with, but it's not work. But weeds are. John 5, 17 says this. John says that my father is still working. Think about it. God himself worked. He created the earth. Why wouldn't we continue to have this whole idea of continuity in the new heaven and new earth? Even in Matthew chapter 25 that we opened up with, he says this, many of you will rule over many things. Rule over what? You will be in charge of what? Of people taking care of the earth. I believe that teachers will still teach. What are you talking about? You mean we'll still learn, Pastor Jim? Absolutely, we're finite. We don't, we aren't all knowing. I believe that there'll be books that we'll read and we'll understand and we'll remember what we read. Praise God. I believe we'll continue to learn. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, it says he'll reveal to us or show us things yet to come. It's a reference to future things. I believe that artists will continue to paint and farmers will farm. We need somebody to plant some crops. I believe we'll have heavy dozer drivers and heavy equipment operators to move earth. I believe that builders will still build and welders will still weld and musicians will still play and accountants will still keep an account. There's a tomato, there's another tomato, there's another tomato. And for us who have gifts and abilities, some of us are horrible at math. Do you think that somehow, because you're, that's not your gift now, that it'll be later? No, you're strong in other areas. God has made us, and divi- and made us incredibly diverse. We're not puppets. Praise God for that. Amen. So you will. You'll continue, and I'll continue to work. When God created the earth, by the way, After the seventh day, he didn't say, I'm done, I'm retiring. (laughs) What's the word of God say? What's, What's Colossians tell us? How does he work? He holds the world together. Day in and day out. He's working. John 5, 17, John said, my father God is still working. You think he's going to work and you're not? 
Other questions, I have plenty of them. Will there be marriage and family in heaven? Matthew chapter 22, verses 28 to 30 says that we'll be like the angels, no marriage, and we won't marry in heaven. But there will be marriage. The bride and the groom will meet. (laughs) Nothing will take away the fact that Anne and I are married here on earth, but we both will be married to Jesus Christ. I rejoice for Anne, and you rejoice for your bride or your groom. I rejoice that I've been married to the most wonderful woman on planet Earth and on the universe. But listen, Jesus said the institution of marriage will end, but never hinted that deep relationships between married people will end. I believe I'll love Anne like I've never loved her before. I believe she'll love me like she's never loved me before. And I believe that this relationship will continue. It'll grow. And I believe our children, Josh, Hannah, and Isaiah, who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and it's the greatest gift they've ever given their parents, to know we will spend eternity together. I believe we'll continue to grow. We'll continue to, to, to know each other. And I'll watch them walk through the streets of heaven and develop relationships. I believe those of you who have lost loved ones, that, that, that you will see them in heaven. And people have asked me, Pastor Jim, like, like, will people be young? Will there be babies? Will there be old people? Will there be young people? Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 8 says that the infant will put his hand into the cobra's nest. That doesn't happen on earth. And it says that children will play with serpents. I believe that it's possible that there will be children. I believe that somehow in this finite state that they'll grow and continue to grow. Do you think Adam and Eve didn't grow? I believe that relationships will flourish and continue to flourish in heaven. People ask me this, will we all be the same age? Will we all look the same? And they always ask me this, what about my body? And what are you asking? Well, I'd be fit. (laughs) Here's what I know for sure. There won't be any handicaps. And Connie Waters will be dancing with Jesus Christ. There will be male and females. How did I know that? When Jesus appeared after the resurrection, when he was on the road and they saw him, they knew he was a male. (laughs) There will be male and females in heaven. I believe we'll, have, we'll all have beautiful bodies. Keep in mind, the most beautiful body you see now is still under the curse. Think about that. It, and there are beautiful people in our world. And when you see someone beautiful, you say, man, they're beautiful, they're gorgeous, but it's under the curse. If we could have seen Adam and Eve before the curse, it would have taken our breath away. I believe we'll have different heights different weights, different skin color, because Revelation 5, 9 says that every tribe and every nation will be there. Some will be thick, some will be thin. Like God is a God of diversity. Why in the world would he make us all be 30 years old and can run a a three-hour marathon? I mean, why? We're different. There's beauty in diversity. I love diversity. I have some of the best brothers and sisters that are so diverse from me. Listen, before the curse... Things got all, were were perfect, but after the curse, they got all twisted up. It is going, people ask me, will there be fat in heaven? Listen, fat in itself isn't intrinsically sinful. You have to have some body fat on you. If you didn't have any body fat, your body wouldn't function. But I don't believe it'll be unhealthy. 
So I believe when we get to heaven, you'll be able to recognize, they recognize Elijah and Enoch at them. And, and Peter says, let's put houses around those dudes. There was a body, they recognized them. How about, will there be different seasons of weather? And the question is, will it be like Hawaii all the time in heaven? Yes, there'll be different seasons. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 26 and 27 says, trees in the ground will yield fruit and crops. It's got to rain to, to water the crops. And I do believe this with all of my heart. This is my thoughts on this. Like, why would it change? God has already given us incredible seasons. I believe in higher elevations, there'll be snow. Listen to me. Snow in itself is not sinful grace. Imagine for the first time being able to hike in a snowstorm or to to ski down a mountain without the thought or fear of the trauma of death. (laughs) You'll just be going down. (laughs) Why wouldn't our God continue to create seasons of change? Will all people be equal? Will be equal in worth. Remember Matthew 25 but they will differ in gifting and performance and responsibility. I believe God always rewards obedience and he'll continue to in the new heaven. You will be placed in charge of many things if you lived on this side of eternity in a way that lifted up his name. I have so much more, but let me just close with one people always ask. Will there be sports in heaven? Do you think it's possible for sinless people to invent sports? (laughs) Absolutely, yes. Sports are inherently sinful, Grace Community. And some would say we couldn't have sports because competition brings out the worst in people. Well, guess what? We won't have the worst in us to bring out. Sports, someone has to lose. And in heaven, no one can lose, can they? Says who? Losing a game isn't evil. It's not part of the curse. To say that everyone would win in heaven and get a participation trophy? Not my God. (laughs) He has always honored and elevated, even in Matthew 25, based upon obedience. We often say this phrase. The best is yet to what? Think about this way. When we get to the new heaven and the new earth, the best is yet to be. Amen? Oh, Lord, help us today. God, you tell us in Scripture that knowledge alone in itself puffs up. We just don't want this to be knowledge that puffs up. We want it to inspire us to tell others about Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would do a work in our hearts You would renew a fervor in our hearts that you would fan the flame that needs to be put back in action. And I would pray that we would live in such a way that the world would be one to Jesus before the rapture occurs. Please, Jesus. Thank you for all these incredible, incredible, incredible gifts that are set ahead of us. Help us, God, to hear these words. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week. God bless you.